Cards on the Table, a podcast about board games, card games, and tabletop war games. Welcome back to episode 47 of the On the Table Gaming Podcast. I'm Chase, and today we have a really special guest. I'm super excited to have him on, and it's none other than the renowned miniature painter James Wapple. We don't have a lot of news today. Uh, the Song of Ice and Fire 1.5 updates. Um, no new scenarios have come out or other changes have been leaked since our last episode. So we're just going to jump right into our podcast here. Uh, James, if you don't know him, I've linked in the in the description below of the podcast notes the blog and his Patreon. Check out his work. He's also got some great information on YouTube, and you can learn a lot from watching and, you know, as I hope, from listening to him on this episode. People call him the Bob Ross of miniature painting. He's like that level. And I love just putting on his stuff. And, you know, while I'm painting, sometimes I'll, I'll have him on his YouTube videos be painting along. And he's got a super soothing voice. He's a really nice guy. And, uh, you know, without further ado, let's let's get into it. So, uh, James, thanks for thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's going to be a blast. <laughs> so, I mean, as I was saying in the bumper before, I mean, you are known by many names as like the MacGyver of miniature painting or the Chuck Norris of miniature painting. Uh, I've always seen you kind of as the Bob Ross of miniature painting, but you're you're basically a, a painting legend. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you today. So I'm Thank, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thanks again for having me on. This is, this, like I said, it's going to be really fun because I have been <laughs> enjoying the miniatures in the game. So w- one of the great things about A Song of Ice and Fire is that it it's really has an ease of accessibility and it brings in a lot of players from different ba- gaming backgrounds, some of which maybe they don't have any painting experience and others who are like really veteran war gamers. But the cool thing about that is that then the people playing the game, the community, they have a lot of diverse experiences and perspectives they bring to the game. So how did you end up doing a Song of Ice and Fire the Miniatures game, both playing and painting it. We just celebrated at ReaperCon the one-year anniversary of the day when, this is Jim from Dark Sword Miniatures fame, walked up to me and said, so what do you think of the Song of Ice and Fire Miniatures? And he was really excited. And I looked at him like he had 14 eyeballs, and I said, what are you talking about? Instantly, (laughs) I thought it was just kind of messing with him because, you know, that's what you do sometimes at conventions. And he said, come on, Song of Ice and Fire Miniatures game. I said, Jim, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And he says, you know, Game of Thrones. Now I've just committed double heresy because I'd never seen the show or read the books. Oh, my goodness. Okay. We'll we'll forgive you. (laughs) Now he's genuinely angry. So this is a great starting point. (laughs) And he says, come on, the, the Kickstarter campaign. He really got mad when I had no idea what he was talking about. He says, you were at Gen Con. You were about 50 yards away. I said, yes, trapped in a booth doing airbrush demos. I saw that in the bathroom and nothing else. At this point, he utters a few colorful metaphors, which are probably not YouTube friendly. And he goes off. He comes back seven, ten minutes later, slams the starter box down on the table, utters a few more metaphors directed very specifically at me, and says, look at those bleeping miniatures. And I looked at those, and I think the first ones I pulled out were the halberds. And he says, I know you. He says, your big thing is you hate weapons that you have to essentially recast yourself or take Mm. a while to. And he's look at every single one of those is perfect, right? And I said, man, you're right. What's the deal here? And then he went (laughs) through some of the technical stuff about the sculpts. That's when I found out the Big Child Creatives was kind of behind the sculpting there, a name that I've known for a long time. And I said, hmm. And he says, Jim, have you not wanted ranks and flanks back since your Tomb Kings died and everything else died? Haven't you wanted this? And I said, yeah. And he says, you've always wanted to do 
non-metallic metals on vast hordes of units, well, you got your chance. And I think a month later, he sent me the starter box, some other stuff, and I immediately started to film painting tutorials. I mean, immediately. Man, I remember when I first, so I actually only came to know your work with A Song of Ice and Fire. And I guess, you know, everyone was like, how can you be so late to this party? And I, I, well, I remember distinctly seeing your uh, Lannister uh, halberdiers. I think they were posted in the Facebook group, but the, the metal, the the non-metallic metal on the halberdiers like the shoulder pads i think they had like reflections on them or something like absolutely crazy like i didn't know that it was capable to do what you were doing with those miniatures and instantly became a fan well if you check out the the blog you can see an was it an empire great swords unit that i must have done back in 2013 2014 and that was the last time I'd had a chance to do that Sky Earth non-metallic metal. I'm basically a fantasy unit, kind of a high fantasy unit with the armor, the helmets and everything. And since then, because we've, we've been studying the European painters, and I also started to study Instagram cosplayers. It was pure huh. gold because instead of a suit of armor that's on a wall somewhere with a white backdrop and a white light on it, these are actual people wearing armor in the woods with other people around them. And I couldn't believe how much stuff was reflected in the armor. Not just that's the fantastic. Line, not just the sky, but the other cosplayers themselves. So their arm would be reflected on their chest. Their pants would be reflected on their chest if they were hunched over at all. And I said, whoa, this is fantastic. So when you look at things like the halberds or even the crossbowmen, you will see the guy next to him reflected in their helmets because why not? God, it's what you do. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I'm like, yeah, why not? But then to actually see it like <laughs> actually done, <laughs> that's a whole nother thing. That's why I did it in, in all of basically almost everything I've done for Song of Ice and Fire is some form of tutorial so that this way people don't just have to wonder, well, how the heck did he do that? They can just go, oh, okay, here it is. And holy smokes, he did that whole entire unit, including the bases in like 13 and a half hours. All 12 of them. Yeah, and, and uh, the best place that they can find your tutorials. Uh, now, I know you just did your live streams. I loved your Thin Warriors one. And I was watching your uh, most recent Stone Builder, the Night's Watch Stone Builder Catapult painting tutorial that's now also up on youtube uh, but they would go to uh, wapolis.blogspot.com and then also through your patreon right that's just james wapple on patreon and one of the things i think this was a couple of depticons ago someone said jim what, what is it that you love most you love army painting make that make that a thing tell people not just okay we're gonna paint 10 guys but you time each effect and you say okay this one effect took 20 minutes on this one guy is it mm. worth it to do it on a whole unit of 10 or maybe just on the champion because you gotta you're multiplying 10 times two times three or four well what's right. the song of ice and fire four combat units let's say right. you just did four guardsman units are you willing to do that on 48 guys right plus ncus and attachments so 50 plus are you willing to do that basing effect that freehand effect or in the case like the pyromancers there's object source lighting up the wazoo oh with your flames on them uh the oh, uh oh, yeah. yeah oh man i'm I, I can pull them up now here but i'll i will link uh 
in the notes for this podcast, I will link to his blog with some of his, I mean, all of it's good, but I'll put some of my favorites. I'll link in there so you can check out the Pyromancer is definitely, um, how about will always be one of my favorites. Cause I think that was the first time I saw that it was possible to do what you were doing with miniature painting. I just never seen anything like it. Um, but it's okay. So, so Jim Ludwig, uh, Jim Ludwig kind of coerced you into, into getting into this game. How, how do you know Jim Ludwig? Well, we go back a little bit of ways because obviously Dark Sword has been around a long time. Right. And actually, if you check out the blog, some of the earliest figures we did were Dark Sword miniatures. And what I loved about those is they were based on artwork, like let's say Larry Elmore. Mm-hmm. And what he would do is he would have a sculpt, maybe even two sculpts as part of a set, but then the painting was on the box art. And on a number oh. of occasions, I took the painting, took the miniatures, and created a 3D environment that matched the painting. Mm-hmm. So you know, you could get down That's to so ground cool. level and see the painting, but now you could go around it. You right. saw it back. It was almost like the, you could see the back of the painting that you could never see otherwise. And that was so much fun. And we've always loved the figures because they have a lot of detail, and that's fantastic for tutorials. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to show somebody, well, how do you paint a face? It's best if it is like a face instead of a pumpkin with some eyes carved out of it because it sure is kind of borderline on that. Mm. And I was doing Mm. some Dark Sword tutorials as part of the Patreon page. And he says, Jim, I know you need army stuff. Here you go. Here's army stuff. And oh, by the way, it's ranks and flanks, which he might have said like 10 or 20 times. By the way, it's ranks and flanks. So I was I was really missing that, and now I've got that back. Except you don't need a degree in advanced calculus to be able to move the units around. Right, and that's also part of the, what's amazing about the games. It's sort of it's streamlined down to the fun parts, without, and you don't really lose anything in the process. And the cards and the taxes board adds so many like different strategies and and ways to think tactically on the actual field. Because one of the the rules about doing an army painting thing is that it's got to be from some kind of a game system that I play. That's why I started with Bolt Action. Mm. Because this way, it it goes beyond just the painting part of it. Now it's, all right, I'm doing this unit of halberdiers. How do I make it viable in this list? Am I going to paint an extra guard captain here? No, I kind of like the assault veteran. Let's do him. Uh, Because you can't paint everything all at once. I say, do you want to paint? this Jamie, do I want Kingslayer Jamie or do I want the other Jamie? You know, do I want Duelist Jamie? Which one do I want? Which one do we paint? And NCU wise, I love my NCUs. Actually, the first time I ever played, it was fantastic because there were six NCUs for only five spots. (laughs) So it became game within a game within a game. And Mm -hmm. to me, that was really fun because it didn't come down to just who could roll the most sixes. Right. Oh Another my gosh. Yeah. The thing that has nothing to do with the board. And it's okay. Great. You can pull off that combat move, but one of your NCUs is just going to be kind of sitting there lonely off to the side. Now, does your painting impact the factions that you like to play? So I really enjoy playing Free Folk, and I love your Free Folk painting uh, on your uh, Cave Dweller Savages or even your Raiders and your Giants. But um, that's an army where you're going to typically be fielding a lot more units. Do you find that then you are maybe playing units that uh, factions that have smaller armies because you know you're painting such to a, such a high standard that maybe you can get more of them on the table painted? 
Well, as I think I showed you the, the Lizardmen and the Tomb Kings, this is oh, the yeah. unit that oh, yeah. didn't create a Lizardman army. He only had Skinks and Croxigors. Oh, my so God. Average some, of the, some of the dioramas you've done are – that's what I'm like. How do you do all that? How is there enough time in the day? Uh, well, there's this special gravitational well that creates a 36-hour <laughs> day just <laughs> this part of the United States. I knew that was your secret. <laughs> or you just don't – do sleeping thing and drink unicorn blood very often. <laughs> uh, that's what most people swear that I do because it gets even worse at conventions where it's not just staying up late. It's also getting up really early. They say, wait a minute, you were just down here painting three hours ago, you idiot. What are you doing down here? <laughs> well, you're here. Maybe, maybe that's the secret. I guess, you know, hmm. Uh, it's uh, for some people, uh, I guess they're, they're like murder mysteries or they're like a movie or something. Right. Like that. They, they have to see how it ends. For me, I just when I'm painting something, it's like a mystery. Can I do this thing? And then I got to see how does it look. Just like that stone thrower, I there had been a part of me that thought, well, if my voice goes out of me, I'll just stop and do the snow on the next one. And I said, no, I just want to see what it looks like now. I want to see it now. So I oh, just go until it was done. And that came out beautifully. It scared even me that four infantry, the stone thrower, the base, the stakes, the snow. For me, looking at that going, that was only three and a half hours. Yeah. But that's what I try. I try and give people hope that they can paint their vast silver hordes or gray hordes or whatever material <laughs> painted. Because I've seen time after time, heck, I'm in possession of armies right now that people thought were going to be fun to paint. And a month in, they lost all interest because right. it was the same thing over and over or there was the law of over ambition where you say mm -hmm. I'm do all this on everybody and you say good lord that's going to take me 20 years so now the, the stuff goes off to the side and the more you look at it and see it sitting there staring back at you the more you hate it then i've seen it and that's why i've got stuff sitting on the shelves here yeah, no, I can relate to that. <laughs> it's just, they're just sitting there mocking you. So were you always, was this always the thing that you were very singularly focused on painting? I mean, when, when did you start painting miniatures or maybe, you know, when did you get into this aspect of art? I'd always been a 2D painter. My training is watercolors, pastels, oils. Heck, I used to teach watercolor and pastel classes all the time. Oh, okay. So this is really not that unusual, just sort of a different format. Actually, it's much easier. Well, that explains a lot, actually, because you, you can tell that you are not just a painter, but that you're also a teacher uh, watching your live stream. I'm still like just fascinated how hard it is to be talking live while doing another task. And, and you really seem to have that down. It really, it, well, we're kind of a family of teachers. When I look at it, every single one of us was either a dean of students or a teacher or something that involved teaching. Mm -hmm. And as a teacher, you're not a teacher. You are a cheerleader. You're a mentor, a life coach, uh, sometimes a slave driver. And your thing is to show them the why, not the how. The how is irrelevant. They could read that in a book. But why mm -hmm. are you using that brush? Why did you do that technique? Why didn't you do that? Because as soon as they know the why, that is that gives them the power. Because now they can, they know the why. They can make their own choices afterwards. Because you can't hold the brush for them. Eventually, they've got to do it. And if you can't arm them with some some kind of solid, easy to replicate follow info, 
like those those crazy sayings, you know, if a color goes somewhere, it must be everywhere, or thick paint on thinner paint, those kind of things, that is easy enough to tell yourself, wait a minute, why is the paint falling off the miniature? Oh, yeah, it's probably not thin enough. Mm-hmm. Those Because I used to actually, when I was doing demos and, say, pastels, I would create a mistake. I'd do something where I'd say, oh, well, we're just going to have to tear up this piece of paper, aren't we? Next thing you know, I'm painting again. And people would come back years later and say, Jim, you saved me like $200 just in paper that I can throw <laughs> away. If I can do the same thing with miniatures, as in please don't strip those darn things, <laughs> just paint over them. Just treat it as an underlayment instead of a mistake. Just say, you know, if I didn't like green there, use that green as an underlayment for another color, for something that's red or orange or whatever. You'd be surprised at how much you like it. And with the, the teaching thing, too, it's what, what can I say? You have to break it down into simpler things for folks so that they can just not get too discouraged. Because I've had people try to teach me when I was doing 2D art and they walk into the room and they paint this magnificent painting. They wouldn't say a word. We would take a guess as to why they were doing what they were doing. And we learned nothing. There would be another person who maybe didn't even do an entire painting, but they, it was a lot of questions and answers back and forth. They said, look, here's why I'm doing this. You need to know this. Those were way more valuable. And maybe they didn't quite have the skill level, maybe, of the mm-hmm. other person. But because they armed us with the information that, heck, I still know to this day, that is pretty important. Because now you can, again, it's in your head. You don't need to consult back with somebody again. It's you kind of have that knowledge now. It's been transferred to you. And I think that's so important too. Um, so I've been, you know, I, I paint for fun, right? And I'm, I'm uh, not super skillful, but the problem is that I basically, you know, over time sort of, you know, self-taught. I started when I was in middle school and uh, we didn't have YouTube. And I, you kind of, you tried to buy like those books that would be like, here's how to paint. And I used to get, you know, old Warhammer miniatures and it would be like step one, step two, step three. But it was always like, you could do the first two steps, but then the next step was like, suddenly magically completely different than what you could do based on like the line of text. And, uh, you know, basically kind of tried to self-teach myself how to paint, just kind of messing around with stuff. And I feel like that's the challenge I have now is I don't really have the why understanding. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out how to improve your stuff when you don't really understand the basics or, you know, these core concepts, you know, and that's why, you know, I really think what you're doing is so valuable. We were doing one class. This was at Depticon years ago. And somebody, you could just, you looked at his face and you said, oh, clean up aisle seven. Something's going wrong. And he just had this look on his face. And we were doing a non-metallics thing. And he said, geez, yeah, I've put his, I can't get this any lighter, but I have no contrast. And I said, just mind if I just paint, paint on this thing for a second? He says, sure, go ahead. I added a couple of strokes of darker paint. And all of a sudden there was contrast galore. And he just kind of hit himself in the face and said, oh, geez, why didn't I think of that? He, he didn't think to darken the other side. He kept lightening stuff. Right. There was no contrast because light next to light, well, looks light. Right. And he did, didn't even, but now forever and ever, he said, I never forget that lesson that I learned because all I had to do was just one or two brush strokes. Didn't even have to say anything. I literally painted a couple of brush strokes. And from that day forward, he would never forget that, yeah, okay, if I add some dark here, now I had some contrast. How do you know, uh, this is a very specific question, but I figured since I've got you here, I might as well ask. Um, 
So sometimes I find like I will try and blend layers to get a highlight or a shadow. Um, and it looks so good close up. But then when I put it on the table, it's not noticeable. And then the other times, then I'll try and make it more, have a contrast that stands out more on the table. And then I look at the miniature and it looks like cartoony, like cell shaded. And, and I'm looking at your stuff and it, it, it's always kind of like it finds that like perfect middle ground. You know, is, is there a general rule of like, you know, how far away? You, I mean, I don't know. Your stuff looks good close and I'm, and I'm sure far away as well. Does that does that problem make sense? <laughs> well, it does. Well, going back to 2D art, there were times where we would walk up for a Thursday critiques, also known as public execution day. And we, <laughs> we would say, well, it looked different back at the house. My lighting was different than this because mm-hmm. we couldn't afford $100 light bulbs. Hmm. Now, it's very different with LEDs and stuff, but that can make a big difference. The lighting makes a difference a lot. When I'm painting, almost everything is on camera. So I've got about six lights pointing from every imaginable direction at the same time. What you sort of do is you you almost layer your effects. So from a distance, this stuff is going to show, and that's more your those broader highlights and shapes. But close up, that's where you give – I call them the color surprises. So if you got Lannister crossbowmen in their red whatever, but in the shadow, what do you see? Blues, greens, and grays. That's why yeah. close up – there's something for you to look at because if the shadows are just dark red, like you just took some brown and made the red mm-hmm. darker, how is that going to look any more interesting at two inches than at two feet? It's going to get interesting. Okay. That's why when you get in on these, the closer you get in, I mean, heck, I, it was a bolt action tournament. Somebody stayed, they had seen them from a distance, then they assumed that they were painted from two to four feet away. Afterwards, he got up close to him, held him in his hands. He said, Good grief. I didn't see any of this. I didn't bother to look in because most people don't give you that little bit of truth <laughs> where the skin tone has the greenish grays or there's some purples in there or, or even on the skin tones of, well, just about everybody that's north of the wall where they kind of have that rosy cheeks and red nose of the, yeah, <laughs> it's just too dang cold out here. <laughs> Those are the kind of things that really show up more up close than they do from a distance. So you try and give them a little bit of treats there when they get closer in. And that's what that's about the best way to make your stuff look close up. Let's say you want to get that. Was it the best painted or player's choice award at a tournament? Those are the little surprises you got to give people. And I know people are scared to do that because they think, wait a minute. Why do I want green in my red cloak? This makes no sense. But you saw in that the, the cross, not the cross stone throw is doing that oh yeah and that's the other thing it's like some of those colors i i really liked let me see if i can pull the picture here but um you know even like you're doing units that are black cloaks um and when you get in there close just seeing all the detail and like you're saying now like that totally makes sense like the surprises like the things to look for as you get closer that's so that's evident in your work but the uh well with a lot of the the uh all the take the black. Well, it's not black. I black is I don't have any black. I don't even have a jar of black paint. But I've got blue and brown. I got a ton of that. And guess what makes black? Blue and brown. <laughs> but the nifty thing uh-huh. is well, you mix those, let's say blue and brown liner, or let's take some of the contrast paints that are like wildwood and what's the one? Leviathan blue. You take mm-hmm. those two, you mix them together, you're gonna get a black. 
but inevitably there's there's going to be more blue or more brown. As soon as you mix any sort of a light color in there, guess what? Now you're going to have this deep bluish gray. Let's say there's more brown in it. Now you got more of a brownish gray. If you use black, it's just dead. And any color mixed with black is dead. But it, let's say you take purple and green. That's another way to make a dark gray. As soon as you mix any lighter color into that, now you're going to get something that's, well, now it's got a little more purple in it. Or, wait a minute, is that more green? But you you trick the eye. Like, think of all of those the swords on the, what was the unit that I just posted the other day? The the Mountains Men. Yep. When you look at that armor, it's, it's like a kaleidoscope. It's like somebody literally took confetti and threw it all over those guys. Because there's magenta <laughs> and green right next to each other. On the swords, on the armor. And, yeah, but it's so subtle and it's... I don't know. If someone came up to me and was like, yeah, my mountains men have like magenta and green. I might be like, interesting, but yours, it's so, I don't know. It's just so skillfully woven in there. Part of it is force of habit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and some of the things like that idea of, well, you work on the whole figure all at once instead of just the face or just one isolated part. You know, some of that goes back to the art school stuff where you would actually get reprimanded if they saw you just sort of hanging out in one corner of your painting. But when hmm. we started doing miniatures back in 2000, 2001, well, we were told, yeah, you prime it black and you just paint little parts of it, starting yeah. with the darkest color, work your way up. And that worked great. You would paint a face and that would look fine until you painted the stuff around it. And now the face didn't look right at all. It looked horrible. Why? Because every color next to black primer looks dark or, or, or too light. <laughs> so so now you have a face that's too dark because now you've got the area around it. So that's why I advocate just look. So normally I would just like hopefully have faith and be like, is, hopefully this will look okay in the end, I guess. I don't know. Well, you, you sort of take some of the fear away because now, and there's that blank canvas syndrome, right? You got primer all over this thing. And what's the first thing people do is they go to their wall of paint and they take 20 hours choosing just the right red. Mm -hmm. Or if you just said, yeah. blank this, take any red, stick it on there, and then make it lighter or darker afterwards. Hmm. It's, it's like the kid that's in the ice cream aisle at the store and can't choose one of the 20 different flavors. And yeah. the parent <laughs> just says, you get here, you get chocolate, raisin, pizza rolls that's what you're getting because you couldn't choose so <laughs> choose quickly think long think wrong that's another one of my another one of my stickers that i'm going to be making nice because <laughs> you will inevitably talk yourself out of whatever your better instincts were to start with hmm that's an interesting point how many how many times have you gone ah you know this looks right oh wait is it right is right. it really right and then you paint over it and you go oh crud i shouldn't yeah. have done that i've had that also when i'm like i'm done it looks great and then i'm like oh but maybe i could do more and then like i add more and i'm like oh no, it's actually where i was happy already and you know oh yeah that the mortal <laughs> enemy of good is always better <laughs> right now uh, a friend of the show uh, that comes on often is uh mike meeple he does a tutorial for beginners called mike meeple's painting poorly and the goal for him is to introduce novice painters into the game and his goal is to try and paint with as cheap, like, you know, he's saying that you don't need to buy really expensive materials. Now, this is something that I know that you do as well. Um, 
any suggestions on, you know, if you're a new beginner, you know, what is the stuff that you should be buying? So maybe someone just got into the hobby. They want to start painting. They go online and they say, Hey, you know, I, I saw your, your great painted miniature. I want you to send me the list of all the paints you gave, you used, you know, I'm going to go out and buy what brushes should I buy? You know, what do you say to someone like that? Um, you know, how much of an investment should they be making in certain types of paints? Are there certain things where you're like, I always go expensive on this, but like, I know I can do, uh, you know, I don't need to use certain paints for other things. Um, what's your kind of approach to painting equipment? It's generally bargain basement because everybody, they always see me painting right now. The, the entire time we've been talking, I've been using a number eight round craft brush that depending on sales tax costs around 35 cents, depending where you live. And I've painted almost a hundred percent of this. It's like a Mad Max type vehicle, everything down to some freehand details with this brush. Now, maybe there's a little bit of the watercolors training behind some of that. Mm -hmm. But as a new painter, well, it removes some of that fear of, oh my gosh, what if I, what if I ruin my brush? Well, here, if you ruin this brush, which you kind of can't because really I've tried, because <laughs> you can just clean these with rubbing alcohol. I've cleaned super glue out of these things and then painted with them five minutes later. So there's a little, it removes some of that fear because when you're new at anything, you're kind of afraid of everything. I mean, you just, everything terrifies you. Oh, wait, what if this happens? Oh man, what right. if this happens? So if you can take away that notion that, oh man, I just ruined my brush. That sort of, if you take away all these things to be afraid of, it's more likely you're going to have success. So that's, that's one way to go. And the other thing I try to encourage people is to not buy entire freaking sets of 400 paints because you will drive yourself nuts trying to choose the five different reds that you might want. I'm painting a red vehicle right here. I started with one red. It was Reaper clear red. When I needed it darker, I took some blue liner that I was using for the tires and the metals, made it darker. I was also following that rule of a color goes somewhere, it must go everywhere. Then I need to lighten it. So I've got some flesh tone and some yellows that I'm using on other parts that are, guess what, flesh tone and yellow. So with <laughs> four or five simple colors, I've got, well, I paint entire armies with six or seven colors tops. Because hmm. what if you got a met? Well, this is a guy who has to match things that he painted back in 2004, 2003. Oh, right. Right now I'm using a, a dead Reaper miniature paint jar. Uh, it's the <laughs> old screw, screw caps, which they stopped making, good Lord, eight years ago. It's yeah, some of your paints do look kind of uh, haggard or, or uh, vintage, vintage, I should say, in some of your photos. I guess just as one warning, <laughs> don't fall in love with any color because any paint you use is going to go extinct. Hmm. People went crazy, went, oh my gosh, Jim, that Reaper made in flesh, they don't make it anymore. I said, how many times have I told you that's just an off-white that happens to be a little bit red? They make 20 other colors that are almost the exact same thing. Just hmm. use one of those, you'll be just fine. When you think of it that way, instead of, oh, I need this particular red, that red will go away. Two, three so, years from now, it won't exist. So I know I've had people give advice where it's like you should have a painting uh, like log where you write down all the paints you used on the miniature you painted. Is that advice you would echo then? Or is are you saying, no, you're kind of just, you just got to mix it by eye? I would say start start more of a simple way, uh, flesh mm -hmm. tones. Because mm -hmm. we started with miniature painting and we bought 
well, jars, dwarf flesh, elf mm-hmm. flesh, right? One was uh, pumpkin shade, vampire spice. I mean, it was, none of those were flesh <laughs> tones. In no way, shape, or form did they resemble actual skin tones. If we had just taken some kind of a red, some kind of yellow ochre and a white and just made our own, it could have saved us so much anxiety and stress. Interesting. Because huh. we, were, we were trying to find not just the right flesh, but, well, now you got to have the right flesh to highlight that flesh. You have to have the right flesh to shade it. Right. What if you could just mix your own? Now right. you can make anything you need. If you need it a little bit lighter, you just make it lighter. It'll require some practice maybe. But when I do a live class, first thing I do is there's no miniature out on the table. They get the brush. They get some paint. And I say, look, just mix these couple of colors together and mix a third one in that's lighter. See what happens. I feel like sometimes, and this is maybe a very, uh, I'm sort of self-conscious in having talking about painting with you because I'm very much an amateur. But sometimes there's that fear of like wasting paint or like, oh, no, what if I mix these colors and then it's the wrong thing or I mess up and, you know. Is it, there's a little bit of like a reassurance in being like, oh, you buy this paint and then you buy the paint that's like sitting next to it. That's apparently like slightly a shade lighter that you're supposed to buy or something. Once I started doing the, oh, was it the historicals? That's when I started to realize, oh, there's a different variety of terms, formulaic painters, uh, mechanical painters, where there's 15 steps to guaranteed success. If I repeat these 15 steps every time religiously, I will always get success. It's like baking versus cooking, right? It really is. And and this is why sometimes you'll get this fantastic Panzer IV with Schurz in and an ambush camo painted on it. And then the the infantry or the tank commander that goes with it looks like the five-year-old kid painted it. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Because those 15 steps that guarantee a realistically weathered vehicle don't work on skin tones and more organic stuff. It's just inevitable. So you basically, you arm yourself with more tools for the future. Because I've seen people that buy one Kickstarter after another because what do they pledge? It's like any product. It's it's a miracle. You literally open the jar and entire armies are painted. (sighs) You just you buy the stuff at the store before you get home. Your armies are already painted with this thing. <laughs> it's fantastic. Now give us ten dollars a jar for it. Right. And then you get it home and you use it and you find out. Wait a minute. This is just like every other paint. I have right. to have some notion of what I'm doing with this. That's very true. <laughs> well, maybe we let's pivot here then. So I could because I could honestly I could talk to you about uh, painting advice all day. But uh, you did just recently get back from ReaperCon. Uh, so what was that like? What were you doing there? And then how was that experience? Well, ReaperCon is really expanding by leaps and bounds. A couple of years ago, there might have been 500 people in the building. Last year, there was over 1,000, easily over 1,500. And I would not be surprised if they're at 2,000, 2,100 by next year, which is such a rapid expansion. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. What we did was we... Kind of everywhere we go, there's a Fort Wapple, a huge surprise, <laughs> where we literally take over a portion of the hotel and we just, we have painting parties there. I'm there usually with some kind of a camera and a monitor set up so that people can watch. <laughs> kind of like what I do all the time. It's basically taking the YouTube channel on the road in person. And that's fun now because now there's people in the room with you. They can actually ask you questions. 
they can say, Jim, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure what you meant about this. I'll literally grab a figure and I'll do a quick spot demo. Boom, right there. That's your inner teacher. Or I They're, guess actual teacher. <laughs> it's like video on demand. I mean, it's like scrolling through YouTube. It's like, how can I use chinchilla dust to simulate desert sand? Boom. So what I'm hearing is I need to somehow talk Reprocon into moving to Connecticut so that I can get a tutorial bump into you. That, that's it. Because, well, we do it. It started at Adepticon. That's the mm -hmm. first place we did it because that's our home convention right there. Okay. He's been teaching classes there, I think, since 2007. That's kind of where the whole miniature painting classes started. And that went so well that other conventions said, well, you know, would you want to do something like that here where we just we give you some space and you put on just free demos for folks. Whoever walks up can ask just questions, demos, whatever techniques, materials, or just to say, hi, how are you doing? Because a lot of times they never see me. All they see are my two grubby hands and a miniature. <laughs> so it's fun to also see the people behind it. And obviously, I think, gosh, this was our sixth year doing ReaperCon. So we know those folks real well. And, it, and it's fun to see them. It's very different from Adepticon. Because it's really miniatures only. Yes, they're playing some RPGs that use miniatures. But for me to show up there with 200 plus Song of Ice and Fire miniatures, <laughs> that really blew people away. They were not expecting that. It, it, I, I, <laughs> I can imagine. Some of the pictures that I posted, but oh yeah, there was over 200 Song of Ice and Fire miniatures there. And that they just it never even occurred to them that someone would A, paint that many figures, or B, like you said with the halberdiers, go that insane. We'll use that word. I like yeah. to, I prefer sanity challenged, but <laughs> crazy enough to put all those effects in basically massed movement trays of guys. Oh, and man, it's just so fantastic. I'm still blown away. So it, it's part of it is just showing people what's possible. Yeah. Well, I spent the entire weekend painting in oils, but I never. Well, no, no, I saw that actually. And uh, I, you know, I started thinking about it. I'm just kind of like nervous to make that jump. But I guess I should just give it a shot and experiment with it. And and uh, luckily, you, you had that thin um, that thin tutorial. Maybe kind of mess around with some of the techniques you were using there. Uh, and, any tips or like? Okay, so how about this? Uh, for if you didn't see the thin video uh, where he's using oils, um, it's really amazing. Go check that out. Maybe like pause. Go check that out. Then come back here. Um, but so why why use oil versus maybe the the typical maybe more use more used often used uh, acrylics? I think part of it was just nostalgia because when I was eleven and twelve years old, I was doing oil paintings, and I just happened to see a Facebook Live episode. It was one of my Korean painter friends. He was painting a T thirty four eighty five with Windsor Newton oils. You know, he had some of the other specialty miniature oils, but I said, wait a minute. Look at all this nifty blending. He wasn't just weathering the tank. He was painting the right. tank. And I said, I too like oil paints. <laughs> I too have Windsor Newton paints. I also have a T35. I shall try this. And I wasn't sure. I thought this could fail horribly. But I said, man, I really like this. And then it occurred to me, okay, beyond just doing it for the historical stuff, this, this seems to be much faster for me painting. And well, as you know, when you need to paint, 
400 Song of Ice and Fire miniatures in a month. Right. Speed matters. I said, wait a minute. What if I could use the oils for these? Because part of it is instead of mixing colors on your palette, that miniature is your palette. Now, you can just see the difference at Gen Con. People said, Jim, look at your acrylic paint palette. Because I had just done a Chimera Paints demo mm -hmm. on, uh, on Hodor and Bran. And they said that was the usual. It looked like 14 Van Gogh paintings piled on top of each other. <laughs> and they said, Jim, look at your oil palette. Because I was doing a little Mountains Men in oils demo. Said, look at that. This is your palette because there was five little dots of paint on there. And that was it. Yeah, so you're, because you're mixing in the thin video, like basically mixing it on the miniature. That's, I think I've got maybe five or six YouTube lives with oils now. Eh, maybe four or five. I think there's a, there's a Night's Watch one. There's, I think there's also another Free Folk one in oils. Oh, probably the Raiders. Yeah, painting the Raiders oh, yeah, in yeah, oils. Yeah. So I think I've got a few of those. And there's some other Cav done in oils. Just imagine all you have to do is put a couple of dots of paint. You grab a third brush and you mix them together. And they could be an insane combination of colors. You put red somewhere, you put green somewhere, you take a third brush, and now you have a perfectly blended red to green, which are opposites, which are supposed to be really hard to blend. Oh, man. But, All right. I think I'm going to try and make the jump. We'll see. We'll see. It'll be my, my experiment. I'll probably, I'll send you a picture on point to be like, here's what my first learning step was. <laughs> well, it's, and it's not really expensive because, heck, that set of 10 Windsor Newton oil paints was. 28 hours on amazon oh wow i'm using the same cheap old brushes and if you use a michael's coupon or whatever to get mm -hmm. your your high quality white spirits maybe spend another 10 hours there so for about 40 dollars you have all the oil paints you'll ever need for yeah. as long as you shall live that's not that's not so bad. I don't know if you've been paying attention to what you know games workshop paints have been going for so i think uh I'd spend oh, that much yeah. on like just a few pots of that paint. So that was that was the funny thing because July or June and July were going to be oil painting. They turned into contrast paints because everybody was a asking me what did I think about them, and b they were also asking for substitutes for the Reaper clear and liner mm. paints. So I got eleven of the contrast paints that I thought could be substitutes for it. And what was the one of the first things I did? Remember the crossbowmen. I did those yep. with the contrast paints. And I think I did some Night's Watch with the contrast paints. The thing I found is that, well, they kind of do the same thing the clear and liner paints do, except at twice the price. And they last half as long. Mm. Because I've got three almost empty jars of contrast paint at, what, 24 bucks? That set of oil paints, which will last me 15, 20 years, wow. which costs the same price. You start to see the inequity here. Right. And I said, okay, now I realize that the contrast paints are supposed to make things easier for folks. And I can see how they do. But guess what? Green Stuff World intensity inks are the same thing. Hmm. There's only maybe 16 colors instead of 34. Mm -hmm. Heck, they even make basically a contrast medium. I didn't realize it until I looked. I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> this works just like contrast medium. And I think I used one of those. Must have been a Patreon video. Those now they're probably not as cheap as say a Reaper paint, right? But uh, what's a Pro Acryl from Monument or Creature Caster, whatever you want to call it? They have their line of transparents, which are again, it's another version of 
contrast, clear, intensity inks, but those you can mix with water. So you want to thin them down instead of that contrast medium, which is never available anywhere. You just take water or maybe even some flow improver and poof. And now you've got this thin down. It works just like an intensity or, or contrast paint does, but it's it's more flexible. And it literally does cost less than half the price. I was we were doing a little, uh, was it a little hangout meeting, but with uh, those folks and myself, and we were we we're comparing the size of the jars to the price, and we went, oh my gosh! Even in Canadian dollars, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's way cheaper, and it's more available. So There's you're not still... always uh, so basically you're saying is that uh, you're not always getting what you're paying for there, and that in some cases it's you know it sounds like there's a lot of more viable, cheaper alternatives. There are, but for some folks that maybe they can't get the Reaper paints or whatever, that's why I did the contrast stuff. But hopefully the what they took out of that was here's a way to a different way of using those contrast paints that conserves mm -hmm. them. So you're not going back to the store and forking over another eight hours so fast. <laughs> and then as we're sort of coming up on time here, um, you're someone who also travels with your miniatures quite a bit. Any tips or things that you've learned about successfully traveling with miniatures? Well, what I started to do, well, obviously magnets happened early on because I tried the foam cases mm -hmm. and all that did was just rip paint off of miniatures and it took forever to get them out of that case and onto the table. And I immediately started to magnetize and put those in stackable, oh, what would you call them? The, I forget what it's called, Loctite cases. Okay. I think Target has a bunch of those. Probably Home Depot has them. I'm, I'm sure there's a million different versions of these. I actually have a couple of blog posts on it too. Uh, one of them is for carrying bolt action figures around. And I'll, I'll do one on my Song of Ice and Fire stuff. There's really nothing complicated about it. There's a magnet on the bottom of the figure. There's a magnet on the bottom of the movement tray. So those are secure. I mean, I can hold those upside down, shake them. They're not going to go anywhere. I take my stackable plastic cases, a little bit of blue tack, the movement tray to the case, done. Stack them up, carry them away. <laughs> I'm good to go. And I feel like a Song of Western Fire is like particularly well-suited to the magnets on the trays. It really is, and since they are one-piece figures, for the most part, you don't have to worry about what I've had happen where, oh, a rare earth magnet is a little too strong, and you have a miniature hand, and the base is still magnetized to your case. Oh, no. Yeah, that, that's happened more than once, but it's never going to happen with Song of Ice and Fire miniatures <laughs> because they're all – and, you know, I take those all – they're all sawed off the original base. And just some pins, oh, what is it, uh, paper clips, nothing fancy. The, the trick is just finding the right size paper clip for the right size drill bit. Mm -hmm. That, that'll that be the trickiest thing. Once you've got those matched up, you're good to go for pinning. Like I said, just magnetize the, the figures to the tray and then blue tack the tray to the case and off you go. You should be able to knock that case over and pretty much nothing happens to any of your miniatures. I, I know I've tried it. And then uh, and as we start to wrap up here, uh, any any things that we should be looking forward to uh, that you've got in the works here? I know you just came out with, I, I, you know, I keep talking about, I, I'm so excited for the Thens. So 
your Thens video was amazing. Your uh, Night's Watch, uh, the Stone uh, Stone Thrower, great video. Any other things we could be uh, that people should be on the, the lookout for? So as far as the public access stuff goes, now that I've got the Tully Cavaliers in hand and some regular Tully units, there's a couple of things that I want to start to do with those. First, I want to have them look like they're going through some kind of a river or fording a river, shallow river, breaking through ice. So I want to try splashing uh, water, broken ice, because what makes guys look more impressive than they're just smashing through the ice? Like, right. We don't care because we're fish dudes. So cool. And then it's also I want to try doing some really interesting non-metallic metal there because sort of like the Baratheons, remember how that kind of a purple armor? Yep. Obviously here you got a bluish green armor. And I think I actually have a second unit of Tully swordsman i'm gonna do that and it's called true metallic metals not sure if you're familiar with that not as much maybe just can you clarify basically you're doing non-metallic metal effects but with metallic paints Hmm. so you get kind of a little taste of both worlds like let's say i want to do object source lighting right well if i mix this metallic medium with my colors that i'm using for the object source lighting now it just looks like metal but yellow light gotcha. on metal. So if you want to reflect the pyromancer flame onto something that's metal, you're using metals, but as long as you mix that metal medium with your green or whatever your glowing color is, you have what looks like metallic to the eye. And it's yeah, something well, I want to I'll try. To that. The entire Stark army is going to be all TMM because I've never done it on an army. People believe I can't do it, which means it has to be done. <laughs> There we go. How to do it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, like I said, big fan. And uh, I know a lot of people in our On the Table get Discord are big fans as well. When you dropped in here with this recording, I already started getting messages while we're trying to talk. saying, oh my gosh, is that Jim Flopple? Yeah. Uh, and so I really appreciate you coming on. You are like, I, I think we can officially say, you know, I know there's other things we might call you, but you, you are the Bob Ross of painting. I mean, it's just, you know, so phenomenal. And I can't wait to see the next stuff coming out. And I hope we get to have you back on the podcast again in the future. Sounds great. I'll always have a story to tell. And in the meantime, I hope you get your miniatures on the table.